Welcome to CalCast, your creator national podcast. Network News, episode 166. Welcome, GNN fans, to another episode of God Network News, the podcast that tells you what God's doing around the world, not what CNN tells you, but what GNN tells you is going on in the world. If you're tired of listening to all of that crisis network news and you want to hear what God's doing, well, give us a listen. Steve Addison is a great podcaster and very passionate about movements of peoples to Christ. And Steve has his own podcast, very successful podcast, with over 226 podcast episodes. And the name of his podcast is On the Road to No Place Left. And we highly recommend that you subscribe to his podcast because he has an overwhelming library of exciting topics related to movements. And if you want to learn more about movements, This is the place to find the information and he has lots of training and tools and other resources that will really make your investigation of this topic successful. So we really want to thank Steve Addison and his partners there at movements.net forward slash podcast. That's how you can find it at movements.net forward slash podcast for all of the resources that he has given us for these next few podcasts. Thank you very much, Steve. I remember my goal was probably to plant one church in four years, you know. Uh, I remember taking a machete and clearing the grass for that church and trying to acquire land and find a pastor and, and, and you know, get, get the land and, you know, do all those kinds of things. And uh, it was rather rigorous. It was uh, a lot of structure involved. We had the, uh, I say this in quotation marks, the blessing of a local um, authority or ecclesiology that had uh, plenty of extra biblical requirements for what it meant to be a church as if it weren't hard enough to get a pastor and a seminary scholarship. I mean, all the other things that back in those days we thought we had to have to plant a church, even a single church, uh, just so many things that were uh, either that we, that we had kind of added that we thought would need to be uh, necessary to be a church. Mm-hmm. So um, we were. I was able to plant a church. Right now, the church still exists. I know that I was able to visit it, and they have about three thousand members. So that's good. Uh, and then um, after I was in Nigeria, I went to northern Ghana, and I realized that wow, I could have pretty much go into any place and plant a church. And then then it was a matter of I could do a lot of churches, but I didn't necessarily have healthy churches, or people didn't necessarily they weren't impacted by uh, scripture engagement, or we weren't necessarily implementing church planning strategies. Back in those days, um, 
the term in the Lausanne movement was work among. You know, where do we have work among? It was just a compound word that we made up. But um, it was almost like uh, if you were out there doing missionary kinds of work or you had a missionary station, or if you were working among a people group, well, whatever you did pretty much qualified as missionary work. Um, and uh, so even some of those folks were not even getting to a single church, but they were doing a lot of other things that um, I'm sure were were good and well-intentioned. But the, the, the sad part of it was, I think a lot of us who have been church planters on the field have seen this increasing gap of lostness where we were satisfied, at least I was satisfied with an occasional uh, set of baptisms. Uh, and not saying I didn't plant churches. I planted about 120 churches in 10 years uh, through theological education by extension and, and other things like that. But it was still incremental growth. One by one. And you see, you see churches succeeding, churches failing because primarily I couldn't, I couldn't keep them all going. And it sounds strange to say this today, but back then we didn't always necessarily think about multiplying or building capacity among local partners. You know, we, we looked at the missionary task as if we were to engage and then uh, establish a church, stay there pretty much until we retired in that area on the mission station. We never got to the third E, the first one being engaging or implementing a church planning strategy. The second being establishing the church, but the third E being, hey, what about enlisting? What about equipping? Uh, what about enlisting those that we have discipled and planted churches among in the Great Commission and multiplying this on out? I'm not really sure why we never got there, but a lot of them were because of the the, the barriers we ourselves erected to seeing movements. And so uh, at some point, I was kind of born again thinking that Unless unless I change something here in what I'm doing, and also unless God responds with a movement, unless we work together and, and the Lord responds and, and he teaches me and I start learning some things from him, I'm never going to be able to close the gap on lostness. Mm. And it's that horrible, horrible gap in lostness, whatever statistic you want to use, that really has driven me from the research side that 3,000 people every half hour by my count your count may be different. Go to an eternity without Christ. That's a 9-11 event for those of us who are in the U.S. In September 2001, we witnessed the 9-11 event. That's a 9-11 every half hour. And it never stops while we sleep or while we meet or while we do interviews or while we eat. It just keeps on going. So the only way we're going to reach people groups is through movements. And the only way we're going to maintain reach people groups sustaining is through movements. So uh, we, we have to do something smarter. We have to do something better to close that horrible gap. Uh, on again, when I got to Ghana and I was in the northern part of the country where we really didn't need to buy land and where people could put up their own village church and where my people were primarily oral learners and they could never go to seminary or pastor school. Basically, when I moved to an environment where there were not the... Uh, the props, the extra biblical props that I had relied on for church planting, I realized, hey, without those, we can we can do more here. 
You know, I don't have to wear myself out. I can actually train people in each of these roads I'm traveling down every day. And in the, in the process, maybe save my backbone a little bit as well on those roads. Uh, and then, and then I, I did that for about 10 years. And then in 1995, uh, our local partners in Ghana, where I was serving, asked me to become the evangelism director for our Ghana Baptist Union, our Ghana Baptist Convention. And then I pretty much had the whole country. And I thought, well, surely now the methodology that I used in uh, the north when I was a church planter, I can uh, I can con- continue to do that and then train faithful men around me who can implement that that. Uh, I would say catalytic engagement, catalytic implementation of church planning strategies, where we don't necessarily have to be the ones doing the preaching and the baptizing, but we can equip others who will. And then it just starts making sense after a while. Hey, this is interesting. I've been relying on more mission missionaries for my mission, you know, and things like that. And well, it's hard to get a missionary to come out here and stay here and all that. It's hard for them to learn the language. They go back home after a certain number of years. Then I found out I've got all kinds of lovely people here in the country of Ghana who love the Lord. They know their worldview. They know their language. They're never going to leave and go back to America because they have a toothache somewhere or they they have a a sick child. And then it just starts adding up. And I began to see also that there are a lot of bleeders, what I call bleeders to movements, things that bleed energy away from movements. I began to observe kind of from the side because I had come from an area in the northern part of the Savannah area of northern Ghana. And then I went to the southern part where they still had the model of buying land and paying pastors and sending seminary students, people to seminaries for four years, you know, and maybe they'll come out and pastor church and maybe they won't. I still saw how that was going much, much slower And then I started asking, does it need to go that slow where the church has already been established? So I started asking questions such as, is it really necessary that you have to be uh, ordained or a reverend father or a priest or someone at that level to baptize someone, to invite someone to the Lord's table? And uh, there's where I began to run into barriers of ecclesiology and extra biblical the measures of what it means to be a church. Obviously, we introduce these things ourselves. These are the tares that prevent the seed from growing. And we all have to evaluate, are we guilty of introducing extra biblical practices into discipleship or into church planting or even into uh, creating sending structures? And I just began to see that we were doing that. You're listening to God Network News Podcast with your host, Cal Curtis. Look up our website at godnetworknews.com. I remember going to Sierra Leone. This was back before the Civil War, back before 1991. And I remember assessing with some brothers there how many churches they wanted to plant in the the country the the very next year. And they said their goal was to plant two churches. Hmm. Two churches, would you mind telling me what it takes before you're willing to call something a church? They said, sure. It's very, very clear. There are four things necessary for a church. You have to have a seminary-trained pastor with a master divinity degree. You have to have a church parsonage. You have to have a church building. And you have to have, of course, for that building, you have to have church land. 
Oh, and there was a fifth thing. There were some Europeans there who promised all the pastors a sewing machine and all the pastors' wives a machine to make bricks in the hot sun. I thought that's interesting itself. You know, pastors sew because they can do that in the shade and the pastor's wives have to make bricks. But anyway, before they would call it a church, here's the important part. Every church had to have that set of um, amenities before they would constitute it as a church. Obviously, then, they can only go so fast because their, their, their church is uh, dependent upon budget and resources that are hard to come by. So they almost had, I said, well, what happens if somebody starts a church without your permission? Oh, well, we, they can do that, but it's only going to be a group. We have to come and supervise it and maybe keep the lid on it. So these are the kinds of barriers that, that we have. And, and so along the way, though, also within the worldview of people, I saw that there are opportunities. In, in West Africa, there's a proverb. If there's anything between you and power, remove it. Fruitful practitioners deal with the things that prevent the Holy Spirit from empowering them. Um, and uh, so there are, there are opportunities for uh, challenging the extra biblical practices and, and, and barriers that we ourselves erect to multiplication. The next stage was in 1999, after spending time um, being a national director for evangelism and missions in a West African country. I came, I was invited by a man by the name of Avery Willis, who was uh, working for International Mission Board, and another one, Scott Holstey, to come and be the uh, direct associate director for global research here at the International Mission Board. And uh, there again, uh, in research, what I saw was that the research model back then, interestingly, this was before research was on the internet. You can imagine that. Our, our website Here's a shameless plug for you, peoplegroups.org and the Joshua Project site have only been up since 2002, if you can imagine that. So uh, there were a lot of changes that happened back in 1999 that served us to multiply our research and also our awareness of peoples around the world. We made this, this global map called the Evangelical Status of Global Status of Evangelical Christianity. It shows where the unengaged, unreached people groups are where the engaged unreached people groups are and where the people groups that are no longer unreached are living. So we make these maps and we show that. So one of the ways was to visualize the lostness of the world. Where are the countries and where are the peoples that, that don't have a church? Also changing the term from work among to engagement. And in giving engagement the connotation that engagement means that you're implementing a church planting strategy. In 2005, a group called Vision 59 Vision 5-9 came along, seeking to engage all the unengaged Muslim unreached people groups of the world. And they improved on that definition by saying engagement is really four things. It's sending out pioneering teams. And I'm not saying necessarily sending out pioneering teams from the West. Mm. Sending out pioneering teams from local churches within their own country cross-culturally as well. Pioneering teams working in the local language. Uh committed to long-term presence among people they love, not just non-residential missionaries coming in and out. And then finally, commitment to seeing a CPM merge, which means that from the very point of your entry, 
you try to think multiplication from the very, very beginning. You plan for groups to become churches. Um, so um, that meant abundant gospel sowing, all the universals have seen a CPM. About that time that we coined that term engagement. And then that's where, of course, then we get the UUPGs, those that are not engaged. I mean, that, that was all that was happening back in 2000. And at the same time, we started saying, hey, places that we used to not be able to go to because we went there with traditional missionary visas, or even when we had creative access after that, we began to say, well, we can engage a people group, but we can't live in the 1040 window. Back in the 90s, when we can't go to the 1040 window, because that's where the resistant people groups are. I mean, all those, all those things that we thought back then. When we realized we could actually go into the 1040 window with creative access, and not just creative access for the sake of creative access, but to also minister and, and, and help the people uh, in, in poverty and, and the injustice of, of that. One of the primary ways that, that movements happen is because they don't have these extra biblical standards and structures that a lot of times we have implied uh, and imposed on people since the dawn of Christendom. That we've just continued to add these, usually with the defense that we're making the church stronger or uh, more lasting. <clears throat> but um, actually, it really uh, bleeds energy from movements. And Donald McGavern used to say that too. Uh, you can't go and, and really help with movements if you're going to go and, and, and do uh, um, traditional churches that really are not indigenous to the local population. Uh, and those, those kinds of churches can actually become barriers to movements. And of course, we've seen this in a lot of different areas. But, but in the 1040 window, in places where the gospel had not been preached among these unengaged, unreached people groups, those structures, there was no example for those structures, nothing to draw them in. So if, you, if, a, if a movement erupts, then the only thing you have is script, scripture or the church planter to guide you in what it means, what are the essentials of what it means to be a New Testament disciple, what are the essentials of what it means to be a New Testament church. And then, then you're free to do that. Where movements sometimes fail is where they're, where they're near to an established ecclesiology or established church or uh, traditional sort of churches. And when they, when they get going and they get energized and they begin to baptize their own people and they begin to give the Lord's Supper to their own people, they begin to plant their own churches and things like that, is then that somebody finds out about that, goes in to try to help them, and in helping them really hinders their growth and stifles the movement because they'll begin to say things like, oh, well, we'll give you scholarships to our seminary, and then you can go back and teach your trainer, your, train your people. And then they go back after that and their people, I'm sorry, you should no longer be baptized, and we were doing that the wrong way. You have to be a recognized minister by somebody else before you can do the baptizing. We've seen a lot of that, too, where movements get hijacked and a good strategy coordinator, and Bill Smith, my friend, would do this for sure, is a good strategy coordinator oftentimes wants to keep that stream of the CPM quite uh, isolated from these religious structures that can hinder the, the movement in some way by introducing, reintroducing into them these extra biblical practices and extra polity practices 
that can hinder movement. So they, they there are things that bleed energy from movements is yeah, what I'm sure, saying. Sure. Um, uh, I guess the next stage would be when I, I began to, and in 2005, I became director of global research. And there I re- started realizing we're seeing far more movements than we can assess. Really? T- tell yes. us more about that. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to help us continue to bring exciting stories fresh from the field. Visit our website at godnetworknews.com and select the PayPal link on the right side of the page or consider becoming a Patreon partner to receive access to more valuable materials exclusive to our members.